2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and, and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Righto. How do we measure success? I mean, being a successful farmer doesn't necessarily mean that you've got the best-looking crops or the flashiest-looking machinery. In fact, uh, it's not even about the highest yielding crops because to get the highest yielding crops, you might have poured so many inputs into it, you don't get your money back. And, um, and being a successful cattleman, well, is that the bloke who wins the, the ribbons at the show because he's bred these really nice-looking cattle? Or is it the one who can produce the most kilograms of beef at most efficiently? Or what makes a successful parent? Is that the one who can breed the most kids? Or is it the one who can breed the best-looking kids? My mum was pretty good at that. Or is it the one who could breed the smartest kids? My dad was pretty good at that. <laughs> or is it about having the most kids who don't go off the rails? Or is it about having kids who go on to have really successful careers? Or is it about our children coming to faith? H how do you measure success as a parent? Or what about other sorts of successes in life? How do you measure success? Is the champion sports professional more successful than the person who's content to play sport for fun? Or is the CEO of a large corporation more successful than the bloke who, who vacuums his office simply because he's paid probably a thousand times much per hour? What, what makes it successful? And what about producing stuff? How do you know if you're successful? Is a teacher successful if they can produce 10 A-grade students? 
are they more successful than the teacher down the hallway that only managed to produce three? Um, or a tradie, are they more successful if they do a neater job or if they get the most jobs finished or if they produce the most billable hours in a day? What makes a tradie successful? How do we measure success? We live in a world that sets goals and writes strategic plans and, and those who achieve their goals, well, you're successful. And if you weren't able to, to meet the quota, well, you obviously need to have a performance review. What about church? How do you measure success in a church? When I first became a pastor of a church, I, I discovered that these godly men that we call pastors, they had a real vanity problem. And I did too. I mean, we all want to know that we're successful in, in some measure, but what yardstick do we use to measure that? And if a person has left everything, if they've left their career, their home, if they've left behind their hopes and their dreams that they've had right up until now, if they've left everything to, to then, in a, and they've done it in obedience to God, to then go to Bible college and come out and be a pastor of a church or a missionary or a chappie, how... How do these people measure success? How does a pastor or a missionary or a chaplain measure success? And, and how do they know that it was all worth it? You know what pastors talk about when they get together at a pastor's conference? They talk about you. Um, well, how's your church going, Fred? Oh, yeah, pretty good. 80 salvations this month and... And uh, oh, 400 people at our 8 o'clock service, another 350 at the 10 o'clock service. Things are growing, the church has grown, things are going really good. Imagine how inadequate I feel at these sorts of places. I mean, last time I counted 400 was when I was counting the flies coming in on you. And, and I'm not sure that they are listing any more than half of you that fall asleep, breathing the flies in. How do we measure success? I've told people in the past, my aim is to make myself redundant in the church. And in the last couple of weeks, I've sort of made some pretty major steps in that regard. I listened to Andrew's sermon and Jake's sermon. They're both excellent. Um, and uh, yeah, so they, they should be just about ready to take over. So is that how I measure success? Make myself redundant? How do you know if a church is successful? Is it the number of worshippers? Is it the number of likes that they get on Facebook? Is it the number of salvations in a month? Or perhaps it's the size of the mission budget? Is it the prestige of their latest album release? Oh man, I don't think we've even released an album yet. It's coming, it's coming, just wait, you keep, keep watch. Only I don't think they do CDs anymore. Um, is it the size of the youth group? Or is it the number of miracles that happen in an average service? Or is it the number of online listeners or the number of downloads to the podcast or is it the feeling of excitement that you get when you walk into church? What is the mark of a successful church? Did you notice in, in the Bible reading what the Apostle Paul considered to be a success? Faith and love. Now, Paul, he has a favourite trilogy that he likes to use, faith hope and love and, and, and he'll come through with this stuff pretty often and in today's reading faith and love is what he commends this Thessalonian church for 
And he sets their faith and their love, uh, uh, the commendation he gives them for that, in the grand scheme of the overall hope that we have, the glorious coming, the appearing of our Lord Jesus and his mighty angels. The success is a growing faith, like, like a vigorous organic growth in faith and a growing in love for one another. And we're going to come back to that shortly. I just wanted to set the scene, right? This is where he's heading with this. Um, but we really need to begin at the beginning. So today we're beginning this new series on Second Thessalonians. It's the second letter that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. Uh, but I've got to be upfront with you and say that's actually debatable. Um, it's a bit of a debate as to whether we've got First and Second Thessalonians the right way around in our Bible. I, I, and I can't answer that question. I don't know. Um, but nor does it really matter. But it begins like this. Paul, Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I think it's really important here, and it's wonderful that, that he begins the letter like this. He, he's make, drawing our attention to the fact that, that the Lord our God, he's not just the Father of Jesus, he's our Father. Jesus taught us to pray, our Father. And, and, and this is... To me, this is an incredible thing. I don't think we actually think about this enough and often enough that, that we have here the creator of the universe. And in Thessalonians 2, 2 Thessalonians, he's actually coming in to talk about the judgment of God. And he's reminding us right at the start that, that the God who is the judge of the world, we know him as Father. I, I just find this incredible. The relationship that we have with God. And, and this is what we have to remind ourselves of as we're talking about judgment. This is, this is my loving Father here. I don't have anything to be fe fearful of. Now, sadly, some people do not like to call God Father. And I understand why. It's because the experience that they have had of their earthly father has been a horrible experience. And they've had dreadful memories of their earthly father. But the Lord God Almighty, the Father of our Lord Jesus, he is the perfect Father. He is a loving Father. And he is our Father. And your earthly father, he, he may have been a disappointment to you. He may have been a drunk. He may have been a violent man. He may have been an abuser of some sort. He may be somebody who you just feel you can never trust. He may be somebody who you don't even know because he deserted you. But our Heavenly Father, he is none of those things. So please don't judge our Heavenly Father by the experience you've had of your earthly father. In the Lord Jesus Christ and in the mercy of God, the invitation is to come to know our Heavenly Father as the perfect father that you never had. Uh, my, my youngest son, Ben, he used to say to me, oh, Dad, you're the second best father I've got. And I, I can't really argue with that, can I? Uh, he, 
can't really compare to our Heavenly Father. Verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Right? This is what Paul has been boasting about. He, he's been telling all of the other churches that he comes in contact with, oh, you should see that, those folk over in Thessalonica, the chat church in Thessalonica. The, the way that their faith is growing, it's just amazing. It's sort of like that they've just thrown a whole bag of urea out on the lawn and it's growing so fast that they're having to, having to mow it every third day. Right? That's, the, that's the rate at which their faith is growing. And, and not only that, the way they love each other. And not just a few people loving and everybody else niggling and backbiting. They all love each other. Right? He's been boasting about them. He's been t using this Thessalonian church as a really good example of how a church should be. But what sort of faith did they have? What, what sort of faith was Paul so excited about? Was it a faith to do miracles? Was it a faith to raise the dead? Was it a faith to heal the sick? Was it a faith enough to, to receive blessings or, or was it just simply enough to receive provision? Well, it wasn't any of those things. Verse 4, Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Now that, would really mess with some people's theology. Enduring in afflictions. You shouldn't have afflictions, you're a Christian. That, that, this stuff really messes with people's theology. You see, this is the greatest faith. And, and I'm going to say this quite bluntly, that this is the difference between a spiritual person and a worldly person. A worldly person fixes their mind on earthly blessings and that's what they're praying for and that's what they're ha having faith for and, and so they are believing for stuff. Have you, have you noticed that language creeping into, into the church? I'm believing for this. I'm believing for that. That's, that's not Christian language. Christian language is I'm believing in him. Right? I'm not believing for something. I'm in believing in him. And, and so the worldly person has their mind fixed on all these earthly blessings, on believing for stuff, and so it's a faith to give me some kind of physical benefit. Whereas a spiritual person, they have a steadfast faith no matter what. Now, for many people today, they're not interested in the gospel of eternal salvation. What they're looking for is what's in it for me today? What benefit is it for me to become a Christian today? What, what, how's it going to add to my life? How's it going to improve my life? Or how's it going to improve my standard of living? Or how's it going to help me cope? How will it cope me with the pressures of my career? Or how will it, will it help me cope with my depression or my anxiety? Or how's it going to fix my marriage? Or how's it going to fix my family? Or how's it going to improve my health or, or help me to live longer? How's it going to in some way increase the satisfaction that I have in the life that I'm living today? 
What benefit is there for me today? I don't want to have to wait. What's the benefit today to becoming a Christian? Whereas godly faith is about steadfastness. It's not about what I'm going to receive. It's about the one we love. And of course, we know that he loved us first. And it's about sticking with the Lord through the thick and the thin. Because he's our everything. We've surrendered our whole life, our whole being, our whole future to him. Now, many preachers today would have us believe that the equation faith equals current earthly blessings. And that is a very appealing message to the fleshly man or the fleshly woman. And so if you're struggling financially, or oh, you just need more faith. Or if you're sick, you just need more faith to be healed. Or if you're suffering in life with persecutions and afflictions where you shouldn't be suffering, you just need more faith and then you won't suffer. That's what we get told. And, and so for a Christian to suffer or to be persecuted, that simply doesn't fit the mould of what some people think being a Christian is. And yet we can see here that Paul is using this Thessalonian church as a good example to other churches. And he's telling them, he's telling us, have a faith like these guys. And so when the questions arise, I've seen some persecutions, but if the Lord God Almighty is my father, how come I'm being persecuted? If we have the question, well, why is it that those who have been faithful to God, why is it that they are the ones who are suffering? Have we done something wrong? Have we done something to displease God that we're suffering? No. Look to the example of the Thessalonian church. On the contrary. And Paul does something here that, that I believe every Bible teacher should be doing today teaching us about faithful Christian living in line with what Jesus taught us. Paul says that persecutions and sufferings are actually evidence that we truly are disciples of Jesus. And this is what he says. He's talking about persecutions and afflictions that, that these Thessalonians are enduring. And in verse 5 he says... This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Now, today, it's really easy, probably forever, but it's really easy to get fixated on this life and on what I call temporal blessings. You know what the word temporal means? Temporary. So it's sort of like temporal versus eternal. Temporal things are the things that are here for a short time and then they pass away. They're here for this life perhaps or even a shorter time and then they're gone. And in our land, where it's mostly pretty safe to be a Christian, in those odd times, when persecutions and sufferings and afflictions do arise, we might start to think, this is a bit strange. Why is this happening? Well, welcome to the real world, folks. 
sufferings and persecutions are a normal part of the Christian life. And to have a season where we are not suffering, as has pretty much been the case in our land, that's not normal. It's abnormal. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. It is a privilege to suffer for Christ. And it's normal to suffer for Christ. Jesus told us this over and over and over again. In his Sermon on the Mount, he said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, this is, this is the cost of being a disciple of Jesus. And Jesus wasn't very good at marketing. Um, you know why? Because he, he would tell people straight up front about the cost of being a disciple. In Luke chapter 14, he said things like, if anyone comes after me and does not hate even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He said... Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He said, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. That's, that's a very... When's the last time you heard that at an altar call? Not often. But I think the most long, longest lasting results is when we do hear things like that at the altar call. And we do make the decision, yes, I will leave behind everything. I will give my life to Jesus completely and even die for him. I believe you are my Lord. Philippians chapter 1 verse 29 says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Wow. That's sort of like, you know, you, you, I'm giving this gift to you. You, you, can, you can believe in me. And, and here's the free set of steak knives. You, you also get to suffer for me. You know? That's what he's saying here. That, now, this might seem strange. Have you ever thought about suffering in this way? That God's righteous judgment is that you Christians are worthy to suffer for Christ. Congratulations. It's a privilege to suffer for Christ because this is the way of Christ. Jesus said in John chapter 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. 
If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that nobody else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now that they have seen and hated both me and my father. It is a privilege to suffer for Christ. Our Lord himself is the suffering servant. And, and for us to be baptised into the death of Jesus means we also enter into his suffering knowing that we will also enter into his glory. All right, so let's come back to verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. All right, so the judgment of God here, we, we usually think of the judgment of God as, oh, the, the penalty that God's going to give. But you realise most judgments that are given, that the, the judge finds in favour of the plaintiff and, and against the, the baddie, right? So there's a good and bad things happen in the judgment. And, and so the positive here is that when disciples of Jesus suffer and remain steadfast in their faith, his righteous judgment is you're worthy of the kingdom of God. Now, that doesn't mean that we are made worthy because we have suffered, right? It's not about saying you earned your worthiness by suffering. Not at all. Um, we don't earn our worthiness. What we do is we prove our worthiness through suffering. Now, we, we've just been on holidays and uh, had to take a couple of scuba tanks away with me to get filled. And people go, oh, I didn't know you dive. Well, no, it's for filling air pistols. Okay, so I had to get some scuba tanks filled, but they're out of date. And you've got to get them pressure tested pretty often because we're talking high pressures, 200 bar, which is about, what's that, 20,000 kPa, is that right, Jake? I think that's what it is. And, um, and so you have to get them tested. And so I looked it up, how do they test these things? Well, it's hydrostatic testing, they fill them up with water and so that if they do explode under the pressure test, it doesn't do much, it just springs a leak. Um, and they fill it up and they pressurise it to, to about one and two thirds or nearly, nearly double its operating pressure. And what they do is they measure the volume before they do that and the volume after they do that. And if it holds more after they've done it, it means it's bulged, right? Now, this hydrostatic testing, what it's doing is, is it's not making it worthy, it's proving its worthiness. You with me? And it's the same for us with our faith. We don't make ourselves worthy by suffering. We prove our worthiness through suffering. And on the day that Jesus returns, he will be glorified, not by the saints who sat down with their feet up 
watching the television. He's going to be glorified by his saints who have stood fast and who have borne the suffering and not lost their faith. And so when a Christian suffers for the Lord, Jesus is glorified. That's pretty good, eh? Now, throughout the book of Revelation, we, we hear about those who overcome. You know, and people are, yeah, I'm going to be an overcomer. That means I'm going to be a winner. Well, actually, that's a sort of, in, in the context, to, to overcome isn't about beating our adversaries. And it's not about escaping our predicament. To be an overcomer is about having a steadfastness of faith. It's about being unshaken in our faith, even unto death. And so you can stand firm in your faith and be executed and you have overcome. See, in the face of persecution, our direction isn't to retaliate. And it's not to go out and fight against those who are persecuting us. It's about steadfastness of faith. And it's about going on with the commission that he has given us. We have a gospel of salvation to proclaim. We don't have time for worldly distractions such as the simple thing of physical preservation. We don't have time for that. God's given us a message to preach the gospel into this world. A great spiritual truth is that when Christians are persecuted in the power of the Holy Spirit, we go on doing good works. And we go on proclaiming the name of Jesus. And in this, the Lord is glorified. And, and even if we keep on getting persecuted, what did we do? We keep doing good. And we continue to glorify Jesus. Even if we end up in jail, well, that's a good place to preach is in the jail. Even if we die, we will be glorified and Christ will be glorified. But that doesn't mean that, that those who have been doing the persecuting will prevail. Their days are numbered. And so we now come to the devastating judgment of God. When disciples of Jesus are persecuted, does this mean that God has forgotten them? No, he has not. Those who persecute the children of God will get what's coming to them. It's just not our role to do it. Um, Romans chapter 12 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, and this is what we do, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now this, this also is completely in line with what Jesus taught us. What did he teach us? Somebody strikes you, what do you do? Turn the other cheek. He told us that the Son of Man has authority to execute judgment. He didn't tell us that we do. 
And he says in John chapter 5, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. All. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. You see, to God, judgment is so important. Even death isn't going to help you escape judgment. He'll bring you back to life and you'll be judged. Now, now this, is, this is basic Christianity 101. We don't fight. We don't retaliate. We don't take retribution into our own hands. What we do is we do good and we love our enemy and we keep in the faith and we leave the judgment for God. And who would we rather do the judgment? No one. Verse 6. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Now, when it comes to the judgment of God, most preachers today don't really want to preach on the judgment of God. Um, because we know that most people don't like hearing about the judgment of God. Uh, there's the age-old argument, of course, you know, if God is a God of love, then he could never send somebody to hell. And... But the thing is, because God is a God of love, that means he's also a God who gives justice to those he loves. And the justice of God is, is if you afflict someone, you will be afflicted. And, and, and let's be clear here that, that the judged penalty for those who reject God is described as destruction. Now, that doesn't mean annihilation. Like some people picture, they, they like to think, oh, he just annihilates them. He, he makes them cease to exist. No, the word destruction is about complete ruin. Now, we all know people when they get to the end, get to a position in their life, and my life is such is just a complete ruin. There's nothing good. There's everything bad. It's just awful. Um, only the complete ruin that that we're talking about here, it's eternal. That there is no end to it. On the day of judgment, when Jesus returns, those who are excitedly awaiting for the return of Jesus will be granted relief. Whereas those who reject Jesus, those who don't want to have anything to do with Jesus, will have their wish granted. Have you ever thought about judgment in this way? They don't want to be with Jesus. Your wish is granted. They don't know God. They don't love God. They don't want to be with God. And so their wish is granted. And they will hit the drafting gate. So at the drafting gate, oh, you love Jesus. Come through into glory. The drafting gate, oh, you, you don't like Jesus. Well, don't be with him. And you go this other way. Therefore, you have no part in his glory. Verse 8. Uh, now, we're talking apocalyptic literature here, right? So when it talks about inflaming fire, it doesn't mean that we've got to get that hell is a place with gas burners under you. We just mean that it's painting a picture of awful devastation okay inflaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus they will suffer the punishment 
of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now, if we're talking about the drafting gate, heaven, hell, glory, devastation, what's the great separator here? What sets the Thessalonians who will glorify the Lord, what sets them apart from the unbelievers who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus? Faith. Faith. Ongoing, unyielding, ungiving up faith. It's because they believe the testimony of the apostles. It's because they believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that they preached. And it's because they've stood firm in it. That's what sets them apart. Faith, steadfast faith. Now, when it comes to the judgment of God, some preachers love to preach on this stuff. We call them hellfire and brimstone preachers. You know, you, you, you know, just think of this. Here's a spider that I'm dangling over the fire. Now, this will be you if you don't give your life to you. I can get the picture. Not, not so popular today. Um, there might still be a few around. I don't know. Um, but then others completely ignore it because, let's be frank, we preachers, we don't want to be offensive. Now, for us, by working our way through whole books of the Bible, we're reminded about the day of judgment just as often as what God brings it up in his word. But something I've noticed is that each time it's brought up, there's application there for us, right? It's not just about us knowing that there's a day of judgment coming, right? It's not just about knowing that. It's about there's an application something that should be happening in our lives because we know that. Because there's a day of judgment, how do we live? Verse 11, he says, To this end we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfil every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to say this. Christian living isn't something that we do because we're afraid that God's going to judge us. Right? If you live your Christian life and go, oh, I'd better do the right thing now because I don't want to be judged... Or even if coming to faith is about, I don't want to go to hell, so I'm going to have to give my heart to Jesus. Oh, man, I guess I'll live with it. Do you think that's what God wants for us? Not at all. Not at all. The way we live is our response to the grace that God has shown us in the Lord Jesus Christ. He fills us with a love for him. That's why we're Christians. We love God, not because we're afraid that we're going to go to hell. It's not because we're grasping and, oh, give me the, give me the, give me the, greatest, the greatest reward. That's not why we're Christians. We're Christians because we love Jesus, knowing that he loved us first. And living for Jesus is easy because he fills us with his spirit. 
His spirit comes and lives in our hearts. Jesus is living in your heart. And as we live by the Spirit, our lives glorify Jesus because it's Jesus who's living out through us. We have a calling. You have a calling. I have a calling. So let's pray for each other. Let's pray for each other that that we will live out that calling. That we will live worthy of God's calling that we may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Now, when you think about judgment, you don't have to tell me, but I want you to be honest with yourself. Does your mind go, yeah, the coming judgment of God, yeah, so-and-so, he did this to me and he did this to me. Get him, God, yeah! Yeah! Is that, is that where your mind goes? Now, sometimes in, in anger, it's sort of like, mm, yeah, I'm looking forward to the day of judgment. Yeah, God's going to get you. Is that where your mind goes? I want you to know that's, that's not the mind of Christ. Ezekiel 33 says, As I live, declares the Lord Yahweh, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. When we consider the coming judgment of God, the way of Christ is to have a heart of compassion and a heart of love and and to have a resolve that wants to share the good news of Jesus with those who are not yet saved. This is the good that he would have us do. To love others enough, even those who are evil, even those who have hurt us, even those who have persecuted us, to love them enough to share Jesus with them. Let's pray. And we're pretty much going to pray the prayer that, that Paul prayed. Let's pray. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make us worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in us and we in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.